Saints, I want to muse with you for a few minutes this afternoon. And I just want you to think through some ideas with me. And I hope the effect will be a brief reminder to us of something that we're to be doing while we're awaiting our Savior's return. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Christians at Rome expresses a desire that they continue to change through an extended period of transformation. Writing to them, he says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Please please turn there. The New International Version translates Paul's exhortation to them like this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You probably know that my favorite hymnist is Isaac Watts. We sung one of his hymns this morning um, when I survey the Wonders Cross. He's the best. He's the writer about 90% of the, about probably 90% of the time when I read you a poem at the end of a sermon, it's, it's Isaac Watts. You may know that he is buried in a non-conformist cemetery in London. <coughs> There's a memorial to Watts in Westminster Abbey a memorial that was funded by public subscription, that is, by donations in 1845. But Watts, surprisingly, is not buried in Westminster Abbey because he was a nonconformist. He was also the son of a well-known nonconformist who had been imprisoned for his faith. And consequently, though brilliant, Isaac Watts was not allowed to attend Oxford or Cambridge universities, but instead was educated at the dissenting academy at Stoke Newton. He worked as a private tutor. He preached. He wrote. He trained preachers. He's the author of a logic textbook that is still used today. In English church history, nonconformists also known as free church people, were Protestant Christians who did not conform to the governance and usages of the established church in Britain, the Church of England, or the Anglican Communion. Now, why do I mention Isaac Watts this afternoon, other than the fact that I'm a great admirer? Well, specifically because he's a non-conformist. And beloved, if I read Paul's exhortation to the Romans correctly, and to us, his desire for us, the apostolic desire, is that we, like Isaac Watts, be non-conformists. His exhortation is, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, here's the exhortation for the afternoon. Do not conform. Don't conform. Beloved, think with me. Is it possible, or it is possible, to have knowledge without having wisdom? It is. It's possible to have knowledge without having wisdom. But it is not possible to have wisdom without knowledge. Are you with me? Do you understand? It's possible to have knowledge without wisdom, but it is impossible to have wisdom without knowledge. Knowledge is a necessary precondition for the acquisition of wisdom. Look there at the end of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. With a renewed, transformed mind, Paul says, with a mind that's been not conformed, but transformed, you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. With that kind of a mind, one that's not conforming, but it's been transformed, you'll be able to do that. To practice godliness, God-likeness, to practice that demands that we know and understand what godliness requires in whatever the situation is. Paul's teaching that the authentic Christian life is a transformed life. And the transformation of life in Christianity comes about, as Paul says, through the renewing of the mind. Now listen, saints. An understanding of the Word of God renews the mind. Please listen carefully. An understanding of the Word of God removes the mind. Now let me clarify something for you, lest there be any confusion about what I'm saying. It's not uncommon in Protestant circles to hear someone refer to the Holy Bible as the Word of God. Have you heard that? I'm sure you have. It's quite common. And if I think back to Bible verses I memorized in my youth, probably some of this is linguistic. Surely you've heard someone quote Hebrews 4.12 and identify it with the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is quick or alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God. Now, beloved, listen, I have a high regard for Holy Scripture. And I know you do, too. The blessing of having the Holy Scriptures readily available and in our own language, that blessing is immense. Uh, It's really an unfathomable blessing. It would be hard to overstate it, what a blessing it is. But I learned years ago from my study of philosophy about equivocation about the incredible importance of using clear and unambiguous language, especially in the communication of complex ideas. Let me give you an example. 
Do you know what equivocation is? It's a fallacy that's caused by the double meaning of a word. Equa, equal, vox, voice, equal voice. Here's an example. In 2006, George W. Bush, the President of the United States of America, made a very succinct statement. And George W. Bush said, the United States does not torture. Now, I believe that to be a lie. And if it is, that would make George W. Bush a liar. But some would call that uncharitable. But listen, more technically, George W. Bush is guilty of the fallacy of equivocation. And I don't believe that his equivocation was innocent at all. What he did was use a private definition of the word torture. A definition that excluded things like extended sensory deprivation, waterboarding, mock executions, and then having excluded things like that from his private definition of the word torture, he said, the United States does not torture. Now that is equivocation. Have you ever heard that Abbott and Costello comedy routine, Who's on First? I mean, the entire the entire routine is premised upon equivocation. That's what makes it funny. Is th- these words have different meanings. It's hilarious. <clears throat> Several years ago, about the same time that I learned to identify equivocation, I was reading everything I could get my hands on by John Reisinger. And I'm a big Reisinger fan. He has the ability to put the cookies on the lower shelf, which is something that I treasure. I need it often. But one of the things that Reisinger does when he engages in theological argument is he insists upon the usage of biblical terminology. He won't, he, won't, he won't accept your argument unless you can put it in biblical terminology. He says, we're supposed to be talking about theology, so let's use biblical language. So when Reisinger would argue with a Presbyterian about the so-called covenant of grace, he'd say, where is that in the Holy Scripture? Where is that covenant of grace? I want to make sure I understand what we're talking about. So show me where that is in Holy Scripture. Because I can find the old I, I can find the old covenant and I can find the new covenant. And I can find the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Davidic covenants. But where is this covenant of grace? And you probably know the answer. It's not there. Because it's an extra biblical covenant. This was also around the time that I had some enlightening conversations for me with Eric and with Reagan Ewing about so-called wisdom Christology. Well, what's the point of all this? Uh, It's to try to communicate at least a little bit of the eureka moment that I had when I realized that Hebrews 4.12 is not about the Bible. Do you understand? 
Hebrews 4.12 is about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the living God. It's not about the Bible. Listen, when the apostolic writer to the Hebrews wrote his epistle to the church, the Bible as we know it did not exist. Do you understand? Remember that the word Bible means book, and it's come to mean any book that's regarded as authoritative or official. And so in Christianity, this is the Holy Bible, Holy Book. But it didn't exist when he wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Those books had not been collected. At the time that he wrote Hebrews, there was something that we might call the Hebrew Bible, excuse me, which was a collection of Old Covenant scriptures, but the canonical Bible had not yet been collected. And when you understand that, then you must understand that the writer to the Hebrews can't have been referring to the Bible when he used this phrase, Word of God. So, if we reject equivocation... If we follow John Reisinger's advice to insist, insist upon biblical terminology, if we would let Scripture interpret Scripture, then what is the Word of God? This thing that is sharp. This thing that's actually alive. This thing that divides one man from another and even cuts the insides of men down to their very thoughts and intentions. What is it? Well, other scripture identifies Jesus of Nazareth, a person, a man, the divine son, as the word of God. You you remember this. John the Beloved writes, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. 1 John 1, 1 1-5. And he writes, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. The briefest Christmas narrative in the New Testament. Jesus our Savior. Jesus our Lord. He himself is the Word of God. But even closer to the context of Hebrews 4.12, in the very beginning of the epistle, the apostolic writer says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoken to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Question. When God speaks, what does he say? Answer. The word of God. 
question. How did God speak in these last days? Answer, by His Son. Question, what is the Word? Answer, the Word is the Son of God. Now, I hope I didn't hurt your feelings when I criticized the U.S. president earlier because he did say something that I do agree with. Not a lot. In the presidential debates in 2000, when asked who his favorite philosopher was, George W. Bush said, Jesus Christ. If you are old enough to remember that at all, he was widely mocked and for that. And arguments were put forth that Jesus is not a philosopher and all such arguments are rubbish. In philosophical circles, Aristotle is often referred to as the philosopher. But to all who have bowed the knee to Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the living God, a greater than Aristotle has come. And Jesus is the philosopher. Studying the sayings and teaching of Jesus often requires one to think philosophically, to connect thoughts and ideas and concepts. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus the divine son prayed to God the Father and he requested, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. And Jesus, the divine son of God, said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. So what is the truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. What is the word? Jesus said, thy word is truth. Now, you don't have to have a degree in mathematics to see there's an equation here. In all red letters, Jesus of Nazareth claims that he himself is the divine word of God. Well, an argument either convinces or it doesn't. So I won't belabor the point. But I don't believe that the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 is the Holy Bible. I just don't. I believe that the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12 is Jesus of Nazareth, the divine Son of the living God. Beloved, listen. The Bible teaches that in the Word of God are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 So where can Christians get all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Where? In Jesus. In Jesus, the divine word. In Jesus, the Son of God. 
Paul asks rhetorically, who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And then, rhetorically, Paul answers his own question with the reply, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16. So, so the, the apostolic teaching is that the transformation that Paul wants for the Roman Christians will occur as their minds become conformed to the mind of Christ. He doesn't just want nonconformism to the world's ideas. He wants that, but he doesn't just want that. He wants conformity to Jesus, conformity to the divine word. And such conformity doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't just instantly occur with conversion. Conversion to Christianity by the power of the Holy Spirit is not the end of our learning process. Listen, it's really just the beginning. At conversion, it's like we enroll in the school of Christ, in the academy of Jesus. And beloved, there's no graduation this side of glory. We're engaged in a didactic quest in an instructive journey, in a lifelong pilgrimage of education, walking with the Master. So you see, beloved, really the pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit of the knowledge of God. It's the pursuit of the Word of God. There is a sense in which Socrates was right in his insistence that right conduct is right knowledge. Not in the sense that correct knowledge guarantees right behavior, but in the sense that knowledge, when it matures and grows into wisdom, leads to right behavior. So listen, dear ones, keep questing. Keep questing. Like beloved Mary, choose that good part which cannot be taken away. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his words. The best seminary is St. Mary's. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. How? How? Well, seek him in his church. Seek him in the Bible. Seek him in his people. Seek him in prayer. And be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Shall wisdom cry aloud and not her speech be heard? The voice of God's eternal word deserves it, no regard. I was his chief delight, his everlasting son. Before the first of all his works, creation was begun. Before the flying clouds, before the solid land, before the fields, before the floods, I dwelt at his right hand. When he adorned the skies and built them, I was there. 
to order where the sun should rise and marshal every star. When he poured out the sea and spread the flowing deep, I gave the flood a firm decree in its own bounds to keep. Upon the empty air, the earth was balanced well. With joy, I saw the mansions there, the sons where the sons of men should dwell. My busy thoughts at first on their salvation ran, ere sin was born or Adam's dust was fashioned to a man. Then come, receive my grace, you children, and be wise. Happy the man that keeps my ways, the man that shuns them dies. That's Isaac Watts' gloss on Proverbs chapter 8. Well, let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed.